0: Everybody that comes on board, uh, usually to the ufology subject or to the subjects of UFOs, something pushed them into that realm because we all grew up with the stigma that was built around the subject of UFOs. So to have people like yourselves that have PhDs, people of science, they're saying, wait, wait a minute. I I seen some stuff too that I, as a scientist, can't explain. Um, What is your background? Like, how how did you get involved in all of this? It's strange uh, because it happened right in in, at the height of my
1: uh, career in geology and palynology. I was um, working at uh, Lamont-Doherty Earth Observatory, uh, which is a uh, subdivision of Columbia University in Palisades, New York. And I was uh, a research assistant for a, um, a Dr. Paul Olson, who is uh, doing work on the Newark Basin geology. And since the Newark Basin was one of my topics for my doctorate, I was an ideal uh, choice to have work with him. And we did a lot of things together, co- field collecting, uh, uh, excavations, uh, fossil collecting, um, and mapping the, uh, the basin. And Olson was involved with uh, a coring project uh, that was funded by the National Science Foundation. And it was an extraordinary uh, project because it cost over one and a half million dollars uh, to drill seven core holes in the Newark Basin between 1990 and 1993. And I was the well site geologist. And um, NSF rarely gives out grants that are more than maybe a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars So a 1.5 million to drill seven core holes was uh, never heard of. And uh, we were the envy of, of the entire scientific community. I uh, would have to go to the well site and describe all of the core, photograph all the core that was coming out of the, each hole that we drilled. And the only time I got off was the four days it took to move the rig to the next well site. And this was for three years, okay? And uh, I was, I, I enjoyed the work uh, and you know, it, it was a lot of work, uh, a lot of time at the well site and I would barely get home and uh, have to get some sleep and some food and have to turn around and drive two hours back to the, the rig. My my boss being unsure about he. He uh, didn't want anything to do with the paranormal, and when he uh, when I started getting involved in UFOs, he he said, "You can't stay here. I can't have you working with me because it'll it'll damage my career, and I could lose my job in in academia if if the uh, the head of Columbia University found out that uh, one of my um, researchers was studying UFOs." And um, I I just left lamont doherty i said i i can't stay here with you and he didn't want me to stay there with him and um i saw a mini uh, mini series on television called intruders by bud hopkins with a ford by john mack and i went to the bookstore to get that book and the book manager gave me a copy of that book to purchase and uh then he said you should also read this other book and he handed it to me, and it was Silent Invasion by Ellen Crystal. And um, I didn't know why it was important to read that. Uh, it was about her 10-year study of UFOs in the Pine Bush area, right around my, in my backyard, literally. <clears throat> I was outraged. I mean, how could this be happening? Right, All this stuff, all these sightings being occurred, in it, within 10 miles of my medium. Uh, and I didn't know anything about it, so I got in touch with her, and she took me out into the field. And on the very first night out there, <clears throat> we had ships flying around us, diving into the ground, coming out of the ground, and doing all sorts of aerobatics uh, stunts in the air with their um, plasma lights. I mean, it was outrageous with the, what we saw. I saw that first night out with her group, of Sky Watchers, and I went out again and again with her. And she took me to all the locations in the valley, in the Waukee River Valley, where she had had sightings. And we saw and more sightings. And I took a series of time exposures. I wanted to document everything um, with with notes and with pictures and with audio. And I started an 11 year uh, study program that uh, went out in the field and on about two or three times a week. and uh, captured these craft, doing basically what they did with Ellen Crystal. They would follow her around in her car and they followed me around as well. So what's going on here? I mean, why aren't the authorities aware of all of this? And they were camouflaging their craft with navigation lights that looked like conventional aircraft and they are producing sounds that sounded like jet aircraft or even propeller driven craft. But, you know, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, conventional aircraft can't stop and hover and then take off uh, at at Mach 5 in an instant and um, uh, dive into the ground and disappear into the ground without crashing and exploding. This is just not possible. So what was I witnessing? And that 11-year study ended up with my book that I published in 2019 called Unconventional Aerial Phenomena in the Walkill in the Hudson and Walkill River Valley of New York and it's about 409 pages of detailed information that I have on my websites as well of all of this information and I have documented over 140 close encounters that we had out there in the field many of them with Ellen Crystal and other people
0: now did you um as this investigation was building, and you were gaining momentum, obviously, you know, having these sightings frequently would give you momentum to keep wanting to investigate these guys. Uh, did you find any challenges in the investigation process? Well, what is interesting
1: is that in yeah, in that uh, he was upset that I uh, was doing a magnetic study of the area. I had borrowed a proton magnetometer from. The physics department at, at Columbia University. And uh, <clears throat> he didn't like that idea. He didn't want me to do anything. So I did get some ba- feedback from him. But uh, other than that, what was interesting is that in that valley, you have uh, the uh, Stewart uh, Army and Air Force Base uh, near um, uh, Newburgh, New York. It's now an international airport as well. And uh, that is in the in about 10, 9 to eleven miles from the area where all of the activities occurring in Pine Bush. The uh, we would go out into the field in roads in, in Montgomery County and um, Orange County rather than Montgomery and Walden and Pine Bush and Walkill, New York, in that general area on the various uh rural roads. And there were many skywatchers that would come out on some of the roads, such as on West Searsville Road. Until they uh, an ordinance was passed to uh, ban that type of watching because the realtors wanted to sell the properties around them, and uh, that sky watching reduced the value of the land, they thought. At any rate, up until that time, there were sometimes dozens of people out on weekends or on Friday nights watching things for things to happen. And Crystal and I would go out with other uh, of her uh, followers, and we would have our encounters. As well. And they would come and put on performances for us, Jason. They would literally come to us where we decided to set up our cameras and uh, do all sorts of stunts and aerobatics in the air um, that defied anything conventional. I mean, in uh, uh, three, three or four different times, they attempted to produce a giant S shaped ditto or a sky glyph. And one time, the Manta Ray, uh, with my uh fiance Pat uh, and her uh, middle son Niles we were there and we um, uh, saw this this brilliant light off in the distance traveling from uh, north to south and it would uh, brighten up and then dim down and and I would take a time exposure of it and I got a compass reading. Then the next time we saw it, it was, it was closer and it would brighten up and dim down. I took a time exposure of it and a compass reading. Third time, it was very close. And when it uh, came on, I took started a time exposure and it did this huge S-shaped ditto in the sky. Like it was a very large craft, at least the size of a 747. And it was doing this silently as it rose up and in, into the into the air with its plasma lights, two headlights, uh, increasing intensity to the, the brilliance of the of the moon, but uh, creating a huge red glow, as it rose and then it flipped over and traveled backwards to form the cross part of the S uh, <clears throat> letter, and then it rose up again and uh, to a, a higher altitude. Uh, to the top of the S letter and took off to the south. And as it took off, it turned off both of its lights and then turned on one and it turned it off, turned on the other, turned it off. I even interviewed uh, a, a, a commercial pilot who wanted to look at those photographs. And he, I asked him, is there any plane that you know of that man has made which uh, can do that type of stunt, climb vertically, silently and he said no there is a plane that was used as a as a um, uh, <clears throat> a puddle jumper in vietnam that uh had a very long long wingspan used by the cia and a very powerful engine and i said and he said that could do that type of aerobatic stunt but i said could it do it silently and he laughed he said no way the throttle would be at full bore as it climbed vertically and this is a propeller-driven craft. So uh, we clearly got images of craft that were doing things that are not at all uh, conventional. Um, and But the, probably the biggest discovery I made is that as I took my time exposures, I had my SLR uh, Minolta camera with a electronically operated shutter on a stable tripod, pod. I would have a, a pocket recorder uh, and a lavalier mic. I would have an indiglo watch, and I have a notepad in my left hand with a pen in my right. And I would also the uh, shutter button of the camera. I would sight the the uh, lights through the uh, through the lens uh, viewfinder on the Minolta. And then when I, the lights were on the far left of the, if it was light was going from left to right, when the left was on the far left of the view screen, I would open the shutter and estimate to when the, the craft would reach the other side of the film frame. And then I would close the shutter. And then I would look through the lens and move the camera again to the to get the next picture in sequence. And every time I uh, saw this, I would call out open shutter, close shutter open shutter, closed shutter, and I would call out the time on my watch and write it down in my pad. So I got a, a consistent pattern of of uh recordings of that documented this whatever light I was photographing. But what I discovered quite quickly right early on when I was photographing these is that when I opened the shutter of my camera, the the light that I was photographing would do an oscillation up and down. I mean, a significant oscillation, and it would dampen slowly as it moved across the frame of the camera. And then I would move the camera and open the shutter for the next picture, and it would do the same thing. It would oscillate. Well, this bothered me because I thought that this might be a vibration in the camera. So I went to the airports and I took pictures of conventional aircraft taking them off with the same camera, same setup, and there was no similar oscillation. So I realized that it was the the pilot that was creating this oscillation of his light. And uh, then I began to take notice. How does he know when I'm opening the shutter of my camera? Many times these lights would be half a mile to two miles away. And I I thought, well, maybe they have some very good night vision equipment. Uh, And they were, uh, but so I also realized that I was calling out for my audio recorder. Open shutter, close shutter. So I stopped doing that. And I just took the pictures in sequence and I still got the oscillations. What bothered me most was that on occasion, the oscillation would occur right before I closed the shutter. Okay, I can open the shutter of my camera. There's a, there's a physical action that is taking place mechanically and in uh, with my voice. And uh, somebody could pick that up. However, how did they know when I was going to close the shutter? And they would produce an oscillation right before the shutter closed. So then I realized that even though I had stopped calling out open shutter and closed shutter, I was thinking open shutter and closed shutter in my mind. So I stopped doing that. I just opened the shutter and closed the shutter without thinking. And guess what? All oscillations stopped. They couldn't, they were reading my mind. They were literally in my head, knowing what I was doing with my camera. And I have some extraordinary pictures of one uh, triangular craft with Ellen Crystal there. Uh, we witnessed this as it came from the uh, west, of the sun uh, in front of a setting sun, and it arced over us. And every time I opened and closed the shutter of my camera, Jason, it jumped to a little bit higher level. It jumped and then it jumped. The whole all the lights jumped in, in, in physically, and in one case when they did this pattern of dance, the lights came off the craft, went to the left of the craft, and started doing a dance back and forth, and back and forth. And then when I, uh, oh, that then the, the, as the shutter on my camera was closing, and then when I opened the shutter for the next picture, they came back online with the craft as it flew over me. Clear indication that the pilot was knowing exactly what I was doing with my camera on. And um, I don't think human pilots have gotten that good at reading people's minds from uh, the pilot seat of of uh, even, you know, uh, alien reproduction vehicles.
0: Now, to be fair, it has been mentioned before by um, <clears throat> some other people stating that, you know, if they had their camera and they were trying to take a picture, uh, the craft would just disappear. And this has been reported several times. And then once they put the camera down, it would reappear. So there is some sort of weird connection between the viewer or experiencer and then the object in and of itself. It's almost like it's a connected experience somehow. So yeah, that's interesting that you had that happen as well. Okay, so one thing I was going to say, because we were talking about the mimicry that these crafts uh, have. I had Frank Milburn who did a, a paper on a strategic um, UFO study that he did for a university in Israel. And he talked about the the crafts that are mimicking our crafts. So they'll uh, mimic a jet, even small Cessna planes, even helicopters. Interestingly enough, people that uh, you know live on ranches that experience the cattle mutilations uh, claim to see these helicopters a day or two before they find the cattle and sometimes these helicopters are silent they don't make any noise so it's almost as if that's like a way for them to get closer to the ground without raising too much suspicion but that has been mentioned a lot more now about the mimicry of our crafts Um, and one thing that frank had mentioned as well bruce was that they can't get the sound correctly the doppler effect he says that they You know, it's because they don't have their ears. I don't think they understand, you know, the full concept of it. But he says whenever they try to do the Doppler sound, it doesn't work out. Like, it doesn't sound the same. Have you found that to be an experience? Like, did you hear anything?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, They would attempt to mimic the conventional conventional aircraft sounds. And the first thing I noticed uh, with the audio recordings, I would do spectral analysis, is that the, the uh, sounds were reverse Doppler. And uh, Jack Safati, who's um, a theoretical physicist, says that that is exactly what happens with a metaphysical hull and anti-gravity. So I basically, very high frequency, as the craft was approaching the, the microphone, and this, all the, the frequencies would drop to a very low frequency as it passed overhead, And then as it moved away, the frequencies would rise. That's exactly the opposite of what normal Doppler uh, would produce. In addition, what was fascinating is I found all of the sounds by these craft were uh, multiple bands of frequencies, uh, 10 to 12 following each other as if the sound was produced on a music synthesizer with each sound being added to produce a full uh, body of a sound of an aircraft. And so uh, with conventional aircraft, that's not the case. I mean, you do get separate individual frequencies from conventional jets, but not to this degree. And where the frequencies actually come together closer and closer when the craft comes over and then spread apart, the craft moves away. And this pattern, as I've documented on numerous websites that I have Published and also in my book, uh, so it is a distinctive feature of these craft. Something that Im- implicates anti-gravity meta uh, material
0: of hulls on these craft. So your friend was correct. One thing that uh, because of because of your study at the Hudson um, and, and the Wallkill River. You were mentioning about the grounds as well. Does that have any implication with, like, have you studied the grounds at all where these things are flying?
1: Oh, yes. In great detail, since I'm a geologist. When I first went out into the field, after I read Ellen Crystal's book, I wanted to do a study of what's there on the ground. So, uh, for myself. One of the things I, I found, which was very bizarre, was a, a remnants of what appears to be a large crater. And this was just south of Pine Bush, New York. <clears throat> and I mapped it. And this was in 1992, 93. And at about that time, I met uh, Richard Hoagland. And I started working with him. He was living in Weehawken, New Jersey. And um, that was only about maybe an hour a drive from me. So, um, he told me about the Cydonia complex on Mars. And uh, he had found that the Apiary Circle and Silbury Hill in England were a match for the crater and Tholus on, on, in the Cydonia complex on Mars. And he thought they were a deliberate attempt to replicate those features on Earth. He called it the Cydonia II. And I found this crater in uh, the Walker River Valley and I called him up and I said, you know, we have all this UFO activity that's around here. And you have all of this UFO, uh, UFO activity in, in crop circles in England around Silbury Hill and Avebury Circle. Could there be a connection? And I said, how wide is the crater on Mars? And he said, the one that has a tetrahedron on its rim and, an out, and a hill or piled up on the outsplash apron that are clearly artificial. And he said, it's 2.3 miles wide. And I already knew based on my mapping that the crater I had discovered was 2.3 miles wide. So then I asked, what was the uh, latitude of the crater on Mars? He said, you have to contact my other geologist, which I did. He sent me a map and it was 41 degrees, 36 minutes. And when I looked at the center of the crater on Earth, guess what? It was 41 degrees, 36 minutes. That's more than coincidence. So I was very excited about this. In addition, Ellen Crystal, Crystal took me out to a location along the dog-like bend of West Searsville Road. And we set up a station that I went back to time after time after time during those 11 years. And we would see all of those activities. Uh, just beyond the tree row across a field in front of us, a farm field. And um, it wasn't until I went up in a helicopter, the uh, Japanese film crew came and and contacted Ellen Crystal and wanted to do a, uh, a, a, a documentary on her work and what I was doing. And when we flew over that area in a helicopter, lo and behold, there, right behind that tree wall, was a huge Indian mound. Nobody had recognized this, not officially recognized. It was on this, on the Owens uh, dairy farm at the time that was owned by the Owens. And uh, it was oval in shape with a hexagonal top and off to the West was a large permanent crop circle uh, defined by trees. And it was unusual. And all of the... the, uh, The craft uh, ascensions and descensions into that area I had mapped and and superimposed them on daytime photograph. And sure enough, that area was a hotbed of UFO activity, of uh, coming out of the ground and going into the ground right there where that Indian mound was. What was interesting is later I discovered that that Indian mound was uh, called an Uncas was part of a shaman uh, sweat lodge which was defined by this large permanent crop circle just to the west. So all of the physical features of an ancient Lenon lenape L- 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 Indian uh, worship area was were present there, uh, still preserved in that location. And the mound was typically used to build a fire where they'd heat up rocks and then carry them into the, the sweat lodge, which is a huge dome-shaped uh, structure and put them in water and, and create a, a steam sa- sauna inside that lodge. And that's how they would communicate with the spirit world. Well, why were they doing it there? It's because of all the lights that were coming out of the ground and going into the ground. And back then, those uh, uh, you know Native Americans thought they were spirit lights. So that seemed to say, or at least it was a good circumstantial evidence, that this activity that I was photographing and we were witnessing was very ancient. It went back before the uh, European settlers to North America, long before this activity has been going on there in an underground alien base, right below the ground there.
0: And it's been speculated that throughout the United States, you guys have a couple of that. I forgot the name of the gentleman um, that, did something similar to your kind of work and was brought in uh, by the government. And of course it was an incident when, by the time they went down the shaft, he saw two what he called uh, tall grays and some sort of fight ensued between him and um, not him, but uh, the person that was escorting him and the two um, crafts as well. But he mentioned that they are just, they're, they brought him in and they kept bringing him to all these other locations to do these, Supposedly investigations, but uh, it, it seems to be that there's there's things in the ground and some people know about it.
1: Yeah. Phil Schneider Was oh, that his name?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because he died shortly Phil after Snyder. that, wasn't he? Like yes. suspiciously.
1: Yeah. And it was he it was it, it was it was cut open and injured, badly injured uh, by uh, a, a, a a energy beam weapon underground. Unfortunately, he survived. But then, unfortunately, later, the, somebody in, in the government uh, did, did away with him.
0: Yeah, I know that, uh, that one, you know, usually when somebody comes out like that and says a story that, you know, one, sounds incredible, but then they end up dead not too long afterwards. I mean, even uh, right now I'm reading the Bob Lazar book and just seeing all the stuff that they that they did To him, to discredit him, to attack his family, his friends. I mean, these were major organizations that uh, this had to be kept secret for a long time. And even now, they, and I'm questioning that too, as well, sir, because you're uh, in science. How many scientists, you know, have unknowingly ended up working for the government and then been thrown in a project like that? Like, because for me, it sounds like Lazar, you know, had a curious mind, but he didn't know what the hell he was signing up for. He had no idea. He thought it was working on something like the Manhattan Project. Had no idea that they were going to be placing them, trying to figure out how the uh, nuclear reactor for this craft worked, uh, much less actually seeing the craft, going inside the craft. And it's you guys, you guys are are the professors that they're going to need your help for certain things that the military is not equipped to do. But then, you know, there's so many people of science, I think, that have been exposed to this that. Now live under threat or live under the shadows um, because of, of what was sensitive information. As far as the grounds that you were investigating over there, the River Valley, did you find any area of like that you knew for certain that things were going in that spot or was it just randomly throughout the area.
1: There are multiple uh, areas where craft would enter the ground or come out of the ground uh, up and down the valley. There was one over near uh, Walk Hill that was on the state-line farm uh, where uh, local residents, as the Martins described, seeing a whole fleet of these uh, lighted craft coming in on this hill uh, right below uh, the farmhouses and and, uh, grain houses and just going straight into the ground at that particular point. I have a website out of uh, on online that you can go in, and I did a, an animation of what they described, and it's quite spectacular. So you have that location, and you have the one on the Owens Farm to the south, um, and then you have several others that have been noted by other people, uh, especially up around West Point, where people have seen craft uh, flying over the uh, uh, Hudson river and going straight into the mountains, you know, right into the mountains without, you know, just like they can pass through the, the uh, rocks of the, of the, of the mountain. And then I was contacted by a, uh, a person living at the time in salt point, New York, which was east of uh, Poughkeepsie, New York. And, um, <clears throat> He and his family lived on the edge of this very interesting uh, area of, of horse farms. And he contacted me because he said he was seeing all of these craft that I had depicted on my websites. He said I, he was seeing them too, and he wanted me to come up there and verify that uh, what he was seeing was what I was seeing and photographing. So I went up there and stayed with him and his, and his uh, parents, and um. He took me out into the field on the first night we were there. He's very excited about this. And I was shocked, Jason, by what was happening. Uh, he said he told me about how that he had seen these uh, trucks that uh, were c- clearly cargo trucks traveling down a, a narrow gravel private road into a ravine. <clears throat> uh, and uh, near his house. And there's nothing down there. It's just a river uh, at the bottom of the ravine, and you have cliffs around it, and you have this road that goes down there, and has private no trespassing, a uh, sign at the at the entrance to it. So what are trucks carrying cargo doing going down into uh, that area? And he said also across from his family's house, on a, on a horse farm out in there in an open field. One day he was saw this. L- Lid open, this hatch open in the middle of the field, and somebody climbed out of it and then closed the hatch and walked away. And he basically said he thinks that there's this is a military base underground. And I have no doubt that the military is working with these aliens. They have to be, they have to know everything that's going on there. Um, and it's also conceivable that um, many human pilots are actually flying these uh, etvs these um or even hybrid craft that we i have been photographing so there's it's not a black and white separation it's it's and it became very clear that uh, over my 11 years that the ets don't want uh humans to know any more about what they're doing than the the government does although the, the apparently the ets uh were um uh, ex- giving performances to me and many others in order to get the information out to let people know what was really happening and when we were there i was there with my friend billy a craft lifted off from that area in that uh, creek ravine flew to our our right and then stopped turned towards us at no more than maybe a couple hundred feet above the ground. And uh, this, I got this all on video, and it was extraordinary that as the craft approached us, it turned out to be the manta ray, diamond-shaped or kite-shaped craft. It turned uh, sideways as it was coming towards us before it reached us and was actually traveling sideways. My time exposures show this very clearly. And it... Uh, Uh, By the time it stopped, it was pointing backwards. And then it took off in a different direction. Uh, So it was like a skater on on ice, uh, turning and and pushing off in in a different direction to go in a different uh, location. And uh, when the craft flew over us, uh, we saw clearly that it was uh, lights at its corners, pointed out this manta ray shape. But the interesting thing is that the two lights formed in the middle between the two main headlights, and the top one moved forward as it was passing us, then moved down next to the light that it was uh, that was below it, and then moved backwards along the bottom of the craft. And conventional airplanes have fixed lights or lamps, and they don't have plasma lights that can move around. So. Uh, that was a beautiful video that I got right there thanks to Billy and um, uh, so that was the last sighting I had of the manta ray back on August 20th 2003 then in 2004 I was given a job offered a job out at NIDS in Las Vegas and I moved west and uh, and worked for NIDS for about four months
0: nice anything happened in Vegas while you were there um, oh, well, there were un- unusual lights that were
1: going around. Remember, you have Nellis Air Force Base and uh, you have Area 51 to the north. So, yeah, there was a lot of uh commercial activity there and military activity, but I, I could never pay- single out anything that was uh, uh anomalous.
0: Yeah, video just got released actually. If you go on Mystery Wire, um, George put it up there, it was on uh, March 1st, of just this month, actually. And a lady had recorded it's up to like seven lights in the skies that are just all in a row and they just hover there for like three minutes and then another light appears on top and eventually they just fade away. And I don't think they were flares because if they were flares, they would have gone off at different times. This they all went off at the same time and they were pretty solid over the, the Vegas Strip for I would say over like. Three minutes and 40 seconds at least. Wow. Uh, which I don't think, you know, if there was flares, uh, you, you would have seen some, you know, some some flaring, but there wasn't any. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. And I think Vegas being so close to S4 and the fact that Nevada, New Mexico and all that area seems to be the most active spot um, for that sort of activity to begin with. Right. How do you build a case? How did you build your case?
1: Uh, going out into the field on multiple nights and keeping accurate records of everything that I saw flying in, in the sky. In other words, what, what, how high it was, uh, what direction it was traveling, uh, compass directions, et cetera. And um, whenever I saw something that was lower than 1,500 feet, which in and around the Walker River Valley is the minimum uh, flight altitude unless you're on approach to a, uh, a runway, And uh, most of the lights that I photographed and documented as AOPs or UAPs were well below 1,500 feet and many were below 1,000 feet. So they were in the 500 to 600 foot range. And when I saw something that was that low to the ground, I immediately uh, pointed my camera, uh, opened the shutter, took a compass reading and and recorded the time and just kept on uh, recording or documenting all of these lights. That were below fifteen hundred feet. Um, the ones that were above, you couldn't determine what they were, even if they were UAP. So, um, uh, if you go out, you can go out on on a regular basis or even a random basis, and uh, depending um, on how much they want to uh, share with you their presence, they will. In Pine Bush area, they shared their presence. On, on many nights, and, and many of them have seen uh, unusual phenomena, especially orbs uh, floating around or moving around. Not just uh, what appeared to be structured craft. Uh, what we got were performances, deliberate performances by structured craft in front of our cameras. That uh, it's hard to say that the, the this was uh, just by accident, or that it was a conventional uh, pilot's. Military pilots doing this? No way. Uh, the military would not uh, uh, risk their uh, hardware flying at such low altitudes over farmlands and, and local communities.
0: Okay, so I got a question for you. Uh, we we were talking about uh, previously about uh, contact, and uh, some people saying that you know they they somehow. You were talking about this earlier too. I was almost like. You got a connection with the craft or the craft seems to know the viewers watching them. Uh, Dr. Greer's, I mean, throughout the years, it depends. Everybody has a, a different opinion on Dr. Greer, but uh, he's been trying to push for this contact uh, saying that, you know, if we will it, if we want to, if we gather enough, we can will this these things into revealing themselves to us or land or or whatnot. And it seems to be a lot more current now in the ufology community that we're, we're talking a lot more about consciousness like it's 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 gaining a lot of i would say predominant attention right now everybody's talking about consciousness and how that might relate to ufos or even to contact with these entities if that's possible uh and you were mentioning also about the, the united states government working with them well that's if that's possible uh, you know even Bob Lazar mentioned how you work on the technology. They weren't given any instructions for that craft whatsoever because they had to compartmentalize all the information and scientists separately to try, like you are assigned to this and only this, you can't talk to anybody else. And they weren't given any instructions. They could fly the craft, but they couldn't reproduce it. So obviously they were never given those directions on how to do that. But, the craft seems to operate on thought as well and consciousness as well. So it's all linking back to this consciousness concept. um Correct. Do you have any ideas or theories of your own concerning this?
1: Well, there's more information that's coming out. It's it's rather amazing amount of information. I mean, we started out with the MJ12 documents that Linda Bolton Howe has, um, you know, publicized quite a bit on, and uh, but now we're getting other things such as um, Tompkins. Uh, about his his uh, alleged participation in a um, in a, what is it a solar warden, a, uh, which was with the help of the E.T.s, they built these huge mega ships that are now flying around space and going to different planets that nobody knows about. Uh, but he was saying that there are, are at least fifty seven different uh, E.T.s that have made contact with human human governments on Earth. And there are other estimates that go up as high as 75 different ET species. And now that we're beginning to find more and more Earth-like planets around stars uh, in our own galaxy, in our sector of the galaxy, it is becoming clear that the probability of human uh, or intelligent life existing in space is very, very real. Now, there's something else that's happening here. Uh, Jason, that most people are not aware of. Personally, I think that most people would like just to have their life being a cookie cutter, uh, dependable and predictable. And they don't want, uh, you know, uh, uh, any any contamination with UFOs or alien abductions. <clears throat> However, the uh, there's new material coming out and, as, and understanding what Is really going on, even if you can accept the tic tac videos by the uh, Navy to be uh, truly uh, UAP uh, and uh, not human uh, experimental craft, um, then it's the Navy is admitting that they are here, they exist, but they haven't gone any further than that. Then you have this one interesting document that I was uh, that was shared with me that is in. It's circulated in a group of uh, aerospace, former aerospace engineers and uh, theoretical physicists. I'm part of a very large um, email group that uh, shares this information. And some of the things that are shared on there are quite extraordinary. But it's one thing that is clear is that there are a lot of debate as to exactly how to make an anti-gravity, gravity gravity shielding craft work. I mean, you have a lot of theories, a lot of uh, people explaining that how this possibly works, but nobody's actually built one and, and flown it in, in for the public. Um, but this document that is is circulating, I call the rumor, is a 20 page document uh, detailing all of the operations at area 51 and Roswell that occurred from the 90s on and goes into great detail on what was uh, uh, what crashed, when it crashed, where it crashed, what was recovered, reverse engineered, and all of this information that goes along with it. And it's it's rather shocking that that much activity actually took place and it was kept a secret from the public for so many decades. Um, And this is the kind of information that is starting to come out now. And, And you're familiar with Grant Cameron. He's an amazing individual. I'm, I'm uh, joined as a member of the Winnipeg uh, UFO Group, um, and I, I um, uh, participate in their meetings every second Tuesday of the month up there in Winnipeg, uh, Canada. And um, there's a lot of interest that's going on uh, with all of this stuff now. I mean, it's really growing, and I'm, I'm amazed.
0: Well, you know, we're uh we're all I, I think now open to the idea. We've all I mean, your generation is the Star Trek generation, mine's the Star Wars generation, and then the new kids now. I mean, they're they've all grown up with the the ideas and concept of V T. So to them it's not far out anymore, you know. Um, but for us it's it's I think we're chasing it. We know that it's out there, but it's still I think initially gonna be a shock. Like the first time that a video clip of one of these entities is shown to the public you know I'd like to say that I'm going to be like oh, I told you so and be all calm but to tell the truth I'd probably still be in as in much shock as everybody else even though I've been studying this subject for so long I think seeing it is one thing uh, seeing the crafts is one thing seeing the entities is is another and uh I mean I look forward to the day of course Bruce as, as much as you do but I still think that it's has got to be jarring it's it can't be an easy thing to understand that a humanoid entity that looks similar to us, but isn't us comes from somewhere else. Right.
1: Right. And and they have, they think differently and they have uh, different objectives. And if you could call it morality or ethics, maybe they don't even have that. They don't even know what that is. So, uh, but that, that rumor document I was mentioning also goes in great detail about all of the bodies that were covered and which ones were alive and especially the j rod and what happened to him and i thought you know wow they're letting this out of this is either one amazing cia intelligence um you know propaganda trying to uh, uh change and and mold the narrative of what we know and don't know or it's it's part of the disclosure that is coming right. out
0: right just just Almost going back to the exactly. old stuff and just validating it, you know, so then it could lead us into the new stuff.
1: Well, you know, it's what's not familiar that is frightening and threatening. What is familiar, and that's the name family comes from familiar, right? That's not threatening for the most part. So uh, the more we're exposed to these ideas and concepts, the less uh, frightening they're going to become, supposedly. Uh, one of the things that um, uh, I, I just wanted to, to, to get across is that the the disclosure process uh, it is getting to the point right now where there are people who are being made aware of all of the stuff that's going on, and yet even them, even they are having a problem accepting it. It's um, you know cognitive dissonance even for people in the UFO community that uh, don't want to accept some of the things that are going on. For example, one of the things I discovered in my research, 11-year research, is is through experiments, is that the craft uh, can present a different image to people on the ground. If there are multiple people standing around watching this happen, everybody can get a separate, distinct image of what's going on. Even the cameras, they utilize can photograph something different than the guy standing next to them. And I've documented this again and again. And now we have a, an interesting theory called the UAP theory that is on the internet. You just have to do that, you, uh, The UAPtheory.com, And it is by a, a gentleman, initially he was anonymous, and now he's given a name to himself as Thor. Interesting choice of names. Um, and he's been in contact with Tim Ventura of the uh, Advanced uh, uh, Energy um, um, Committee. And we have um, a lot of new ideas about how the craft can modify the energy field around them to make the not only the craft invisible, but to create any image they want. Of what the craft looks like. Okay? In other words, they, they can look like a conventional jet, but it's really just a tic-tac inside with it with a holographic I- image surrounding the craft. That's what I was able to discover and document. Uh this coming home from work on the New York Thruway, going north to the Harriman exit in 17. I took to Middletown where I lived. As it was approaching the Harriman exit, I see this. Um, what appears to be a conventional jet flying very, very low, like 200 feet above the ground, coming towards me on the right side of the highway. Now, if you continue on the uh, New York Thruway, you get to Newburgh and Stewart Airport, a major military uh, and, and uh, civilian uh, airport. So it could have been coming from there. But what surprised me is that this all black aircraft flashed its lights at me three times as I was approaching the exit. And what the heck is going on? And as I got closer, it was getting closer to me, and it banked in front of me and passed over the highway, only about 150 feet above the ground. Now, this is not normal. FAA, would, I mean, if this if this was a conventional aircraft, the pilot was in trouble, and it was looking for a place to crash. And it, it, tra- it crossed the highway it, five to ten seconds to cross the highway. And that was well below uh, stall speed for this craft, aircraft. And it was the shape of a Boeing 707, uh, all black, no windows in it, not even cockpit windows, and no engines on its wings or fuselage. It was just the shape of the craft. That's it. <laughs>